And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. Bruce Anderson is here because it's time for Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. You know, I know there's the temptation always to talk about what seems to be the hottest topic on Parliament Hill at any given moment. And we often do that. But today we're not going to talk about the David Johnson affair, at least not off the top of the program. We're going to talk about what an awful lot of people are talking about, especially in the most populated parts, not only of Canada, but the United States. And that is the air quality index caused by, you hear me rasping? I've decided that part of that, part of that rasp is because of the wildfires in different parts of Canada. And, and when, you know, that's what we're talking about, becomes a, not only a health issue, it also becomes a political issue. Uh, you know, here's an example of how it's not just a Canadian story, and it's not just in Alberta and B.C. and Nova Scotia. It's right across the spectrum. In New York City last night, there's a dramatic picture in the New York Times today, uh, skyline shots, but there's one picture from Yankee Stadium where, you know, it's the classic baseball shot, you know, baseball players in the foreground. But the background is the sky and the smoke in the New York City skyline. And there is a huge story in the Times today, New York Times. And I'm sure there's one in Boston as well, because when you look at the, the moving map of the, of the smoke, it's... It's a big problem in the northeastern United States. It's really swept down. It came over, um, you know, down through Ontario, over uh, Toronto. It's still there, and it's pushed into the northeastern United States. So this is not just an environmental story, of which it certainly is one, but it also becomes a political story, you know, on the provincial level, on the federal level, now in the international side. So... Bruce, why don't, why don't you launch us on, you know, wildfires as politics and the impact this is this can have and is having. Yeah, yeah. Peter, I think I started doing survey work, uh, opinion research work on the issue of climate change back around the time of the Kyoto Accord. So it goes back a long way. And in the early years when we were examining how people were feeling about this thing called climate change and uh, the risk that scientists were telling us it put the world to. Um, there was a certain degree of not so much resistance on the part of the public, but hesitancy to see it as an urgent problem, right? People sort of said, oh, that's, I do feel like there's some change happening and it's happening over the long term and probably humans are involved in causing climate change. But um, whenever uh, public policy came forward that had a little bit of an edge to it or a cost or a sacrifice, there was a fair bit of hesitancy because some people just felt like, well, you know, the cost of living is more urgent for me, or this change that somebody wants me to undertake would be too disruptive or inconvenient for me. Maybe I don't need to do it right now. Maybe there are other solutions that can be brought to the fore, technological ones, for example, that will... Um, that will attenuate this problem of climate change without me having to change my life too much. Along the way, in the years since then, 
the thing that has had the most impact on public acceptance of the need to do more more quickly on climate change has been a combination of floods, wildfires, and storms, the likes of which people don't recall seeing either in the strength or the frequency of those of those events. And uh, you could see it uh, building over time into a sense of conviction that this shouldn't really be debatable whether we do more. It should be a question of a debating what we do do more and who does what and how we motivate and how we incentivize and that sort of thing. So I feel like wildfires um, have always been part of that story. But when wildfires exist or happen in unpopulated areas, they don't have that much impact compared to floods in cities, for example, and hurricanes that devastate communities or, or tornadoes that do the extreme weather events of that sort. But several years ago, uh, the smoke from wildfires in British Columbia really settled in on the lower mainland, as you may recall. And the degree of public anxiety and concern uh, we could really see escalating through that period of time. And one by one, different regions of the country, we've seen extreme weather events, uh, including wildfires uh, that are caused by the deterioration of conditions in the forest, if you like, because of, of global warming. Those factors have made more people more anxious about the health effects, as well as the economic effects and the environmental effects overall. And certainly, I think in Ontario right now and in Quebec, we could imagine that a lot of people are are feeling that this is not just a random occurrence, that this is part of a pattern uh, and something that needs to be taken more seriously. Yeah, no, I would agree with that in the sense that I think it is, you know, it's past the random occurrence phase now with a, with a lot of people. But still, it's, a, you know, it, like so many things, it's the topic of the moment when you're in it. And then it quickly gets replaced by something else when you're past it. I, uh, I think that's true. But um, what hasn't changed, uh, what I think also needs to be borne in mind, Pete, at least from my vantage point, is um, even though Pierre Polyev is campaigning to abandon the carbon tax, uh, there is a higher expectation on the part of the public for action that mitigates climate change. And that level of expectation has been going up over time. Um, it's, it is the case that he doesn't um, particularly debate whether climate change is occurring. He says, it, we got to deal with it, but we're going to deal with it with technology instead of taxes. It, it may seem like it's too slow an evolution of the debate for a lot of people's taste, but the debate has evolved. And, um, I do think that, especially for politicians or political movements that represent rural areas or areas where there is a large amount of forest, these events are uh, inflection points for the politicians. Um, it's hard uh, to sound like you're a politician that doesn't have a plan to ward off climate change in areas that have seen devastation. Um, and you know, Fort McMurray uh, was one of those areas not very many years ago. And I, I do think that the opinion changes and the expectation level goes up 
um, even though we still find ourselves embroiled in these skirmishes every once in a while about a specific climate mitigation policy. So what are we saying here that the public wants you, wants politicians to pick a lane and and deal with it and you know they, they want to see some kind of progress as opposed to debating you know which pocket the money comes out of to uh, to use whatever solution there is. They do. The number of people who are dead set against climate action is down around 15 percent in in Canada. Then you add to it some people who say, well, the carbon price is not my favorite way of doing it, or I don't like it because it's Trudeau's idea or some combination of those things. But um, the 50 we we and I were talking about this the other day, the 15 percent who are dead set against climate action, who kind of think it's a hoax or exaggerated or you know, not worth the trouble, that kind of thing. Um, we tend to hear so much about those opinions uh, just because of the way that communications platforms work right now that it, it it's possible to imagine that they're bigger than 15%, but they're really not. Most people are um, in the middle of a spectrum that runs from it's so urgent we need to change almost everything about our lives right now, which is probably about 15% on that end of the spectrum. 15% say this is a hoax and we don't need to do very much about it, if anything at all. Um, and then the rest are in favor of accelerated action. Um, and what that looks like depends on who they are, where they live, how much they feel they can afford, how much they think they've already done. Um you know, to to try to address the problem and and also to to a certain degree, the question of hopefulness. Um, one of the worst problems for motivating climate action is when people feel that it's hopeless to try, that we are headed on onto a in a trajectory that um, it, that won't change because there simply won't be enough collective action. I tend to look at all of the evidence around clean energy and clean technology. Um, EVs and uh, where investment is going, I see a lot of room for optimism. I don't know if the optimism adds up to the degree of change in the period of time that the scientists are telling us we need, because I don't think we know how technology is going to create breakthroughs yet or, or not, but there is, it's not, not nothing. It's quite a bit right now. You know, um, talking about the New York Times coverage of this this morning, uh, I mean, they they jumped on this story very quickly last night. They got quite a few angles as well as some spectacular pictures uh, to it. And one of the angles that I thought was interesting is the kind of thing that can stick in the in people's memories um, and, and start to make sense to them that this is a huge problem. Um, the mayor of New York put out a last night, sort of nine nine or ten o'clock last night, put out a, um, a health advisory on the air quality. Um, because it was a, you know, bad levels and it could cause problems. Like, you know, I, I don't know whether my, um, you know, uh, coughing problems are uh, related to the smoke, but it wouldn't surprise me because I can't find any other thing that they were related to. But <clears throat> the, the, the air quality numbers in New York City last night, the reference point he used was, in the middle of the pandemic, the worst health crisis that so many of us have you know, seen in our lives, air quality went up. You know, it, it was better quality air than it had been you know, in years previous, and that's because you know, people weren't out. 
There were lockdowns, you debate lockdowns all you want, but it, it had an impact, positive impact on air quality. And then last night, the air quality numbers went in the tank, uh, and there was real concern over for health issues. So when those kind of things happen, and they point directly, you know, there was a, there was a part of us, the American sovereignty, was saying, that's Canada's, you know, Canada caused this screw up. And just look at the map, and you can see it all coming down. Just like they blame us for, you know, bad winters. Um, but this one, you know, was more to the point on on the air quality because of the smoke. But when you see evidence like that, it can take hold and add to this, you know, this is not random anymore. Absolutely. It's, you know, happening on a number of levels. I mean, we got a, a letter last week from a trucker in, in, in Atlantic Canada. And the point he was making is that all these things are connected. He said we had this terrible... Uh, storm last uh, fall or a year ago, and all these trees were knocked down as a result of the windstorm uh, in Nova Scotia. And it's just sitting there as kindling and boom, when you have a, you know, it's like lighting a match to your fireplace. This thing just took off and there's still a lot yeah. more there that uh, it's heading towards. So when and these, absolutely. you know, evidence points start to pile up, um, I agree. I think the uh, the point that you're making about the health is that uh, is one that really caught my attention a few years ago because most people see devastation from storms, but they don't necessarily associate it with uh, risk to health or safety. It it can have that, uh, but typically people are able to mitigate the personal risk associated with it. Right, evacuations happen and that sort of thing. Um, with wildfires, um, all of a sudden, the this, the idea that climate change can pose a risk to your health or safety becomes real and um, frightening in part because there's nothing that you think you can do about it for most people, right? You, you're kind of existing in an environment where you can see the smoke where you can feel the impact of it as you breathe it in, where you can smell it. And all the public agencies can tell you that it's bad, but they can't solve it for you. And that is a different kind of way for people to experience risk. It's not theoretical. It's in front of them. It's not just esoteric or economic damage. It's potential health risk to them, to their parents, to their children. Um, and they don't know when it's going to end. And they don't really have a good advice on what they can do to mitigate the risk. Obviously, there's some advice, but um, I think a lot of people are experiencing that right now. And, and it doesn't necessarily make them think there's a magic wand solution, but it does create that sense that when the UN um I think it was last year, released a report that said these wildfires are going to be 50% more common by the end of the century. Um, you know, some people in society love to dispute these reports, um, but more and more people are saying, you know, maybe there's room to debate the degrees uh, of change that we're talking about or the pace of the problem. But it's for most people, it's well past time to debate whether it's happening. 50% more wildfires by the end of the century 
it feels like it's 50% more than it was 10 years ago already. Well, I don't know if it's 50% more, but it's definitely, um, they're describing these researchers a pace of change that is accelerating. Um, And they're saying in a normal course of uh, the way forests work, you should be able to see more fires uh, around the equator and fewer fires the further afield you get. And they're seeing that that pattern has been kind of altered. Um, And obviously there's been such devastating wildfires in California in recent years and Australia and other places um, where uh, the threat to to human life from the fire, not just the smoke, is uh, almost at, um, well, it's at alarming levels, obviously, for people who live there. Just seems to me that um, in Canada alone, the wildfires are coming sooner, earlier in the year than they used to be. They're more extensive, and they're causing more um, damage and impact in a wider, wider berth. And so, they're harder to fight. Um, yeah. One of the things that the researchers talk about in this piece from last year is that so little of the resources to deal with fires go towards prevention. Um, and the cost of management once the fires are happening has been exploding. And so there's a real disequilibrium between how much is put into doing the things in the forest and around the forest that would limit the the risk of fires versus dealing with these massive fires on an ongoing and recurring and even more frequent basis. Okay, we're going to move on, but I, I, I did want to bring up a related matter just for for a quick comment from you, because I, I know you weren't a fan of Mr. Bean, a particular kind of kind of bent humor at times, like Rowan Atkinson, the British um, actor slash comedian. He's also a big guy on the on the car front, and he was and he is a big fan of EVs, electric vehicles. Um, he had his first hybrid car, I think, about twenty years ago, right at the you know sort of the early stages of uh, moving into hybrid. And he's had an, uh, an EV for the last almost 10 years. But mm-hmm. he kind of shocked a lot of followers of his in the last couple of days by saying, you know, I, I'm still a believer in EVs, but they aren't delivering what they promised to deliver in terms of the overall impact um, on, uh, on the environment. And he's particularly concerned about uh, lithium-ion batteries uh, and, you know, governments, including uh, Canada's, are putting a heck of a lot of money into supporting industries uh, on the battery front for EVs. Um, I'm just wondering how how much, you know, people follow him, right? He he has fans. He has a, you know, kind of a worldwide following. Well, you know, and here I am talking about it, giving it, uh, you know, even more. Uh, of an audience does, does something like that have an impact i know you were on the edge of, of buying an ev in the last year and you didn't not because of any of those concerns but because of of musk really um that's right yeah it doesn't mean you won't eventually buy something there's a lot of different uh, evs on the market right now but something like yeah. uh, what mr bean has said does that you know kind of stunt the growth of these things or move on 
You know, uh, probably not. But uh, and just to be clear, because I know there are a lot of people who like his humor. I don't have a big problem with it. It just has never been the sort of thing that makes me laugh out loud. And and I, you know, and there are other things that make me laugh out loud. So it's not like I'm humorless. But uh, I read his piece and I thought he made a, a few interesting points. And I do think that anybody with that kind of audience is a bit of an influencer. But whether or not he's really going to change the uh, the trajectory of demand um, I'm doubtful because I've seen so much evidence that people are really kind of looking into the market. The manufacturers are bringing more cars into the market. And of course, it's also the case that when you when you first sent me that article, I looked at the headline and I thought, ah, why is he, you know, why is he kind of dunking on EVs? And then I read the story and he wasn't really doing that. Uh, what he was doing was saying a couple of things, which um, which reasonable people could could easily agree with. I think thing one is, you said, if you live in an in an urban core and you're driving an old diesel uh, engine, you should replace that car because uh, you, you're, you're talking about a certain kind of quality, air quality pollution in addition to the climate change issue that uh, people need to do something about in those, in those urban cores. The second thing he said is that if you have a car that's only three years old, maybe don't think about getting a new car so quickly because the replacement of cars that quickly is bad in the aggregate for the environment. And I thought it was an interesting point. You can talk to um, people in the architecture field who say, oh, the first decision to make uh, when you're thinking about the future of buildings is the environmental impact of taking one down and putting up a new one is not nothing. And so even if the new one could be more energy efficient, more climate friendly, there is going to be an impact with eliminating the what was. And I think he was making the same point in the automotive marketplace. The third thing he was saying is that uh, the current state of evolution of EV technology includes some things that probably will change uh, and maybe not too long into the future. But for now, carry environmental impacts like uh, the lithium ion batteries. Again, a reasonable point to make. And I think the last part of that, the last sentence maybe of that Guardian piece had him saying, there's no question that electric vehicles are going to dramatically change uh, the climate change issue, the trajectory of our, our fight against it. Um, but it isn't happening right now as much as we might think that it is and um i thought all of those were were reasonable points to make uh might take issue with uh, uh with some of them but uh on your but but they're reasonable points to make and on your point on your question really about whether or not it's going to train change the trajectory I've just seen so much evidence in the last few years that people are saying it's if it's not the next car, it'll be the one after that. And Mr. Bean's issue of should that be uh, three years from now or six years from now or 10 years from now, those are good. Those are good things to think about in terms of the environmental impact of replacement. One thing I know for certain is we have some real hardcore listeners on the whole EV uh, and lithium battery situation. And, uh, you know, whenever, whenever we touch on 
uh, EVs, whether it's uh, on this program or whether it's the random ranter talking uh, with with his uh, theories about EVs and, and lithium batteries, uh, I get a lot of response. And uh, and the hardcore supporters are are very evident, and I'm sure I, you know I can almost read the letters already. Well, this was wrong, or that was wrong, or you know you you should read this professor's study or that professor's study. I mean, it's 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 quite something. I, and I that's all good. Yeah, it is all good. <clears throat> I <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, uh, I I I get encouraged when I see that kind of. Uh, you know, discussion and debate going on about whatever the topic may be. Uh, okay, yeah. we'll uh, move on here and uh, we'll take a quick break, come back, and we'll uh, we'll talk about the David Johnson affair for just a moment. That's right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to... Uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Uh, on this episode of The Bridge, you're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Or, because this is Wednesday, you can watch us on our YouTube channel. Um, okay. David Johnston appears before a parliamentary committee yesterday for uh, a few more hours of um, being grilled on the subject of his investigation, if you will, into whether or not there should have been a public inquiry or whether there still should be a public inquiry or whether a pub uh, or whether a, a public hearing is is good enough and just what he hopes to do over these next couple of months of continuing uh, meetings and investigation on his part, especially at a time where all the opposition parties have called for him to move out of that position because they feel his relationship with Justin Trudeau um over the last, whatever, 20, 30 years, has tainted his ability to make a, a nonpartisan uh, look at this situation. Uh, people expected that this would be tough grilling for uh, David Johnson yesterday, and it was tough grilling. And, you know, I, I, I wonder, as I did at the beginning of this episode, just how many people are following this uh, anymore. Their minds are made up one way or the other, and, and I see that in the mail too. There's a lot of huge, um, there's a huge division over the David Johnson thing. There are people who feel it's really unfair what's been done, done to him and said about him as a guy who's been in public service all his life. And there are others who feel, well, yeah, okay, I'll acknowledge that. However, this is wrong. He shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and, um, and opinions are pretty hard core. I'm not sure anything, why anything would have changed as a result of yesterday. But it was a dominant topic on Parliament Hill. Do you got anything you want to add to it? Yeah, yeah. But before I do, I wanted to ask you, okay, let's let's take you back a few years and you're sitting in a, a planning meeting for the night's uh, broadcast on CBC on the National. And, you know, if you're having this conversation, what is the story coming out of yesterday as far as you're concerned? Um, set aside whether people are paying attention to it or not, you're going to do a story about it. So what is it going to be? Is it going to be kind of straight up? He he came, he got asked questions, he gave answers. Sure. But within that context, did he give as good as he got? There, were there some, you know, were there some holes exposed in his storyline? Uh, did, uh, did the questioners look 
uh, ill prepared and didn't have very good arguments. What was your your takeaway? And then I'll, I'll give you mine. I promise afterwards. <laughs> well, uh, you, uh, you weren't asking for my takeaway as much as you were asking well, what would the approach be to going about doing the story. Um, the the first thing in my list, and we had these meetings about very you know on stories every day, and there was uh, the best meetings were ones where there would be real debate and discussion in the room about it you know, about what had happened and why we were doing the story and where it should be placed in the newscast, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the way I would have looked at yesterday, the same way I looked at most stories, what did we learn that we didn't know before the day began? Whether it was from David Johnson himself or whether it was through the questions that were being asked, that would be, you know, agenda item number one. That there's, you know, it got to be something new there. And if there wasn't, why are we doing the story? If it was just more of the exchange of what some might see, might see as partisan shots from the opposition, you know, a defense that's been the same as from David Johnson through countless interviews, news conferences, statements, issuing of his report over the last couple of weeks. Um, then it could also come down to, you know, whether or not there were there are holes on the other side. And how much of this needs to be fact-checked, the stuff that they were saying about Johnston or about the, uh, the, uh, what had happened on the inquiry front. So, uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of the angles you talked about were kind of included in there, uh, you know, but I, to me, it, it always comes back to what, what do we know that we didn't know before this day began? And, right. uh, and, and you move on from there because it's not just a matter that the people seem tired or bored of this story or, or, or not caring about this story. Because I don't think that is our, our purpose to, to judge that. Our purpose is to tell, tell you what happened on the day and why it's different from what we thought yeah. going into the yeah. day. So that'd be my answer. Yeah. Okay. Window. Look, I, I think that's an important point. I mean, everybody, not everybody, um, Sometimes people like to frame things as either they're captivating the mass of public opinion or they're not important. And I don't think that's I don't think that's right, either from the standpoint of what is the role of journalism, but also um, politically, uh, these two main parties are fighting over three or four percentage points in public opinion. Right. That's going to make the difference likely between who wins the election and by how much. And so. Uh, any issue where 25% of the population is watching it closely or following it closely is going to include, include some people, not everybody. Most of those people are going to be decided, but some of those people are not going to be decided. And so uh, the course of these stories do matter both from a, is it important for people to know? And also will it have a potential impact on politics standpoint? Uh, what I think we know today that maybe we didn't know before includes some things that happened in the context of those hearings and some things that happened maybe outside those hearings. I I gather that Chorus and Global uh, put forward a statement of defense uh, about the story that they ran that implied that Han Dong, the liberal MP who's now an independent, um, counseled the Chinese to keep the two Michaels. Um, remember that story? It wasn't that long ago. It was shocking when it happened. It was part of the catalyst for everything that followed in terms of the heightened sense of um, are the liberals somehow in cahoots with the Chinese uh, in interfering in our uh, democracy? 
um, in the statement of defense, I tried to find the actual copy of it rather than just a summary of it. Um, I saw summary stories, so I don't know exactly what was in it because the stories, you know, provide a rather partial description of it. But it sounds like uh, the statement of defense isn't that the stories were accurate. It's more that effort was put into making sure that they were uh, right. I think that's a very interesting distinction, if in fact that's what that statement of defense says. And the two or three stories that I saw kind of left it that way. Uh, I gather that uh, Global and uh, one of the journalists who is very prominently involved in that coverage have parted ways. I don't know the circumstances of it, but that's also part of the context uh, for this issue and how it's evolving. <laughs> Pardon me, Peter. Um, you've got, you've got the hiccups. Going back. You've got the hiccups. You can Google I, I, whether I, that sounds like the hiccups. I don't think it is. But um, here's the, the, the thing that I was observing about the David Johnson appearance. Um, and I know when uh, you and I and Chantal said what we said about whether or not as respected as he is and deserves to be, whether or not it's it's plausible for him in the context of the House of Commons having expressed uh, a lack of confidence in him for him to continue. And obviously, technically, he can continue. The government has the ability to make that choice. And he has said that he wants to continue. Um, but I can't help but when, when we said those things I, I don't know about you but i got some blowback on social media where people were saying you don't bow down to bullies you don't you know you should you should defend this this individual's integrity and um i understand those arguments and i think they have some merit but i i think on balance what i saw in the coverage of the testimony yesterday was um it, you know, a guy whose responsibility is to try to rebuild some public confidence that there was no uh, partisan involvement in this issue of Chinese interference. That's not really the only issue. Um, the issue is really interference, not only the partisan part, but it is part of it, uh, the partisan question. I've never felt like it, there was much there. But I do think that in the way that politics works, it's hard to find fault with opposition parties saying, well, you had this relationship, you were involved in the Trudeau Foundation, um, you picked a lead council who's donated exclusively to the Liberal Party. Um, you know, they're pointing out connections that is part of our push and pull in in politics. It's you know, you and I might be able to look at those connections and say, well, that doesn't really mean anything. That woman, that lawyer is very well respected and um, his involvement in the Trudeau Foundation had nothing to do with the Chinese question. We we can all sort of look at those facts and say they're well explained. But for me, having David Johnson say, well, you know, my lead counsel is is a person of very great integrity. Well, I'm sure that's that's true, but I'm not sure that's that's going to work politically. I guess is is where I'm coming from because the people not like me, but people who do have doubts 
about whether or not the Liberals might have had some sort of interest in uh, uh, in the Chinese interference. Uh, I think it's a conspiracy theory, uh, but but you have to allow for people to have those opinions. And to me, having David Johnson there yesterday saying, uh, look, uh, members, I understand that you don't want me to do this, uh, but this is my mandate and I'm going to do it. I continue to not see how that's going to end successfully for the government, for Johnson, or for the resolution of this issue and the clarification on, on where we stand, but I could be proven wrong. Well, as we all know on the issue of conflict, uh, it's not necessarily whether you can prove there actually was a conflict. It's whether there is the appearance of a conflict. Um, And and we've all uh, had those kind of situations, uh, you know, in our professional lives, and we've certainly covered enough others who've had that uh, issue raised to them as well, the appearance of conflict. Uh, It's awfully hard to, uh, you know, to argue against that when you see evidence piled up some of which you just went went through. Um, okay, we, uh, we're almost out of time, but we do have time to check in on one of the things we love to check in on. We talked earlier about the uh, how some Americans were perceiving us, and I, you know, uh, because of the, uh, the wildfires. Um, so we're watching them closely too, and we're just fascinated by the Republican race that's uh, going on for their presidential nominee next year. Um, I don't need to go through the list because it's, you know, it's like the bad casting in a movie. Uh, but last week I I said, this is all going to change if Chris Christie gets in because he's going to throw the hammer at Trump. He's not going to be shy about it, and he knows how to do it. Didn't work for him last time around because he was sucking up to Trump. But here, he's not going to do that. Um, and it could be make a big difference. Well, he got in yesterday. And... You know, we're going to see very quickly, aside from what he said yesterday, um, how he's not afraid of Donald Trump. Now, who will come out at the end of the day, uh, you know, as the victor on that uh, on that discussion? Uh, who knows? But um, your thoughts on, on Chris Christie getting into the race? The former governor of New Hampshire, uh, not New Hampshire, uh, New, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. I don't know. You must have seen the some of the clips that I saw, but he, he was doing his town hall. And, you know, it's hard to keep being shocked at where American politics has gone from a bare knuckle, where, where it's come to from a bare knuckle standpoint. But it was a bit shocking uh, what he was doing. He was kind of stalking this, this room and he was saying, uh, you know, Donald Trump might get 30%. He might get more, he might get less, but he's going to get it. He's going to have to, he's going to have to endure what I have to say about him uh, to succeed because I got some things to say. And he talked about Jared Kushner and Ivanka. And he said, you know, they left office and they got $2 billion from the Saudis. And that's your money that they stole. Uh, and I think he was meaning Donald uh, Trump stole because he was saying the reason the Saudis gave them that money was because of favors that the administration did. It was a. Uh, uh, I was surprised uh, at the degree to which 
it seemed like a kind of a no holds barred indictment of the ethics as well as the competency of of Trump, uh, because uh, you know it hasn't been evident that somebody can win that nomination doing that. On the other hand, I'm sort of looking at it and going, well, he's articulate, he's passionate, he's throwing everything he has at it. He's going to get attention in the same way that Trump got attention by saying the most outrageous sounding things. He's going to get attention uh, for what he did yesterday. And it sounds like he's going to keep on doing it. It sounds like that's almost his platform is I'm going to tell the truth about what an awful human being Donald Trump is. And some people are going to want to hear it. And some people aren't going to want to hear it. And we're going to let the chips fall where they may. And um, I do think it's interesting. A last point from my standpoint is that this is probably the 45th time that we seem to be on the precipice of uh, Trump being uh, arrested and charged with some sort of criminal activity. But, uh, you know, it does seem like this might happen uh, any day now, um, any hour now even. And if so, that timing by Christie could look like a little bit of a political masterstroke. Um and, and it will put um, he's put the other candidates on notice that if they don't match or s- similarly uh, be willing to criticize Trump, he's going to be the only anti-Trump voice in that race. And that's a strategically interesting uh, proposition, right, to own that part of the Republican uh, base that, that says we can't do Trump again. If nobody else wants to compete for those votes, Chris Christie's going to find them. And, um, and he'll probably build some support based on that, whether it'll be, uh, you know, material enough to win to some degree depends on what, what happens with everybody else, including Donald Trump and whether or not he gets charged. Uh, here, are my, here are my brief thoughts on, on Chris Christie, uh, who I've watched for, for years and different things on, on this question. Um, you know, I think he wants to win the nomination, but I think he wants more than that to bring down Donald Trump. And he's sick of the, the wishy-washy, um, uh, you know, other contenders for the crown who are just simply not willing to go after Trump. Um, he's not going to hesitate there. But I, I, I remind him, as I'm sure he doesn't need reminding, of uh, what he said for the last two years and his perch as a commentator on ABC, that if you're going to bring down the king, it's got to be with a headshot. Can't hit him in the arm or the leg. You got to hit him in the head because you got to take him out totally right away. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And that has been the problem all along here. Getting the head, the headshot. So he's going... You know, you know, he, he used that description as a classic, you know, former prosecutor in the, in New Jersey and seeing a lot of, you know, ugly crimes over the years. Um, but, you know, I, I, that's what he's going for. He's going for the headshot, knowing full well that uh, going around the edges isn't going to do it. And so the kind of things he's saying um, are intended for that impact. So let's see. Let's see how it all uh, plays out but you're right it it feels like any any moment any day any hour he could be um trump could be you know cuffed and 
you know, in the orange jumpsuit and having pictures taken. Um, but, you know, let's, let's see what happens. There's also that segment of the population that believes that the justice system is crooked and he'll never end up going to jail or even being indicted. Well, at least half of those uh, could be proven wrong this week or perhaps even later today. We'll see. All right, Bruce. Um, good to talk, as always. And Bruce will be back on Friday with uh, Chantel for a good talk. Tomorrow it's your turn, so if you have some thoughts, please get them in like now, uh, and we'll uh, we'll see which ones make the program tomorrow. And the random rant. Just hear what you think about Mr. Bean. We want to hear from yeah, the Mr. Mr. Bean, Bean comments. Yeah, I, well, I know what's going to happen there. I, I I can almost predict who's going to write from the varying sides on this uh, on this debate. But that's okay. If you got a voice on this uh, issue, let me uh, let's hear it, and we'll. Uh, uh, and we'll weigh some of them and see which ones make it onto the air tomorrow. All right, that's all good. Thanks again, Bruce, and we'll talk uh, on Friday. And thank you for listening, and we'll uh, see you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.